Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah and the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. God remembered Noah. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. That is, Noah was rescued. Genesis 19.29. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. That is, he rescued Noah. He did not rescue Noah. God remembered Abraham. He rescued Abraham. Genesis 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. Jeremiah 31.20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. David was afraid of being cast off. Psalms 29.9 Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O oh God of my salvation. Genesis 1.26-27 Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. Genesis 3, 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to man, Where are you? And man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Exodus thirty-three eleven. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Exodus 33, 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Genesis 5, 18 through 23. When Jared had lived, 100, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Deuteronomy 34, 1 through 5. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebu, to the top of something which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Jude. He showed him a lot of stuff. And the Lord said to him, 
This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. I am now going to read from Josephus. Josephus is not the inspired word of God, but it helps understand some New Testament passages we're going to get to in a minute. When Moses had spoken thus at the end of his life and had foretold what would befall to every one of the tribes afterward with the addition of a blessing to them, the multitude fell into tears. Now, one may make a guess at the excess of this sorrow and lamentation of the multitude from what happened to the legislator himself. For although he was always persuaded that he ought not to be cast down at the approach of death, since the undergoing it was agreeable to the will of God and the law of nature. Yet what the people did so overbore him that he wept himself. Now as he went hence to the place where he was to vanish out of their sight, they all followed after him weeping, but Moses beckoned with his hand to those that were remote from him and bade them stay behind in quiet while he exhorted those that were near to him that they would not render his departure so lamentable. Whereupon they thought they ought to grant him that favor, to let him depart as he himself desired. So they restrained themselves, though weeping still towards one another. All those who accompanied him were the Senate, and Eleazar the high priest, and Joshua their commander. Now as soon as they were come to the mountain called Abarim, which is a very high mountain, situated over against Jericho, and one that affords a prospect of the greatest part of the excellent land of Canaan, he dismissed the Senate, and as he was going to embrace Eleazar and Joshua, and was still discoursing with them, a cloud stood over him on the sudden, and he disappeared in a certain valley. Although he wrote in the holy books that he died, which was done out of fear, lest they should venture to say that because of his extraordinary virtue, he went to God. Jude 9. But when the archangel Michael, <clears throat> contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Second Kings 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. Now I'm going to skip a bit down to verse 9. Now when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elijah saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Matthew chapter 17, verse 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, 
and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Luke 23, 32-43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the soldiers cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at Jesus, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we have received the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I share this sermon once a year. I've been sharing this sermon once a year for uh, 20 years. I summarize, that is to say I crystallize the ideas in this speech by calling it the number one thing. I do it for myself. So that I do not forget, as so many of my peers and some of my elders have, I take the opportunity of public speaking to recite, lest I forget, and as I obsess about gaining the whole world, forfeit my soul. As we are introduced to the ideas of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven on earth, it's exciting, enthralling, and it grabs you. But it is not the number one thing. The kingdom, dominion, vision, the church, the ecclesia, the family, these were my obsessions as a young teenager, and I got on fire about them when I was 14. But when my dad died, all of that wasn't going to go the way I thought it was. And when things don't go the way you think they will, then you are tested. And if you have no relationship with God, if you do not have the number one thing, you will wither and die. Your relationship with Christ will not survive. 
because there is no relationship with Christ. There's a relationship with a cause. A relationship with a cause is not sustainable. It is not the highest good. After my father died, I grieved. And the second stage of grief is depression. You stop caring about petty squabbles. In a moment, the opinions of men and mankind become boring when you do take the time to consider them. I spent time pondering God's interest or lack of interest in what we were going through. His apparent disinterest in answering our prayer. I attended a very, very small Christian school in the basement of the church in Zilla. And my life consisted of entertaining people in our church at our house, going to church every other day, and also going to school every day. So I was at church Monday through Friday for school, and then I had worship practice, and I had uh, special meetings. Then there was the Wednesday night program meetings. And then there was actual church, which I had to show up early for, and we always left very late. My entire life was spent at our church when I wasn't at home. What I realized was that all of our things that we were doing that we had come to believe was so vitally important to the kingdom of God wasn't. You start believing that you are so important to the kingdom of God, he will surely protect you and vindicate you and shield you because you are the big deal. Now, intellectually, you will assent to the reality that you're not God's only plan. But emotionally, you, want to, you come to believe that what you are doing is the most important. It seems like a bit of a dichotomy, but if you didn't think it was the most important to you, then you shouldn't be doing it. So how do you handle that? But I had come to believe, and not through overt teaching, no one said this to me, but I had come to believe that we were really it. Our community was really it. We were where it was at. Now this is over and against what was coming from the pulpit itself. At one point in 1994, my father turned around to the congregation and says, now look at the people on your left. And everybody would, you know, you hear the Russell Russell. Now look at everybody on your right. Russell Russell Russell. He probably had said something like hi or whatever. He said, some of the people that you just looked at aren't going to be here at this time next year. God is going to put them somewhere else. And that's good. And on my, during my senior year, early in my senior year, there was a young sophomore, young woman, that I was standing across from, and I said, uh, do you love God? And she said, yes, I love God. And that was an awkward question to ask, and I realized that I was awkward, I felt awkward asking that question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love God? It felt like an awkward question. Felt intrusive, it felt embarrassing, and I didn't know why I had that emotional reaction. And when she answered, Yes, I love God, 
In my head, in my heart, I said, I don't believe you. Now, as soon as I said, I don't believe you, and I articulated that in my head, I came to the realization that I didn't love God. I did not believe that I loved God. When I asked her what loving God meant or what it looked like, she replied with um, some language that I would describe as the way a woman loves her long-distance relationship boyfriend. Now, I'm not clear on everything that this young woman experienced. I'm only telling you what I took from her, from that conversation, which may not have been what she was trying to express at all. I might have just been mirror gaming, as we say, really hard at that point. The basement of my church is a lot like the basement of granges and churches that were built in the 50s and 60s throughout the Yakima Valley. Oh, 40s, 50s, and 60s throughout the Yakima Valley. There's a, f a smell that they all kind of have. I think they all use the same pipes because the water all tastes the same. It's weird. And I remember distinctly every little detail about this because this really came home for me when I realized that in the face of all of my upbringing and all of my theology training, I did not love God. Not really. So I began to wrestle with this, and I'm going to reference the four loves. And please bear with me if you've heard this sermon 20 times. But the first style of love that I encounter as people describe it, their love of Jesus, is faintly erotic. It's faintly erotic. It smacks of um, the Song of Solomon. This is Eros love. And I'm rolling with C.S. Lewis's definitions. The Eros love. This shows up in our worship music, and it shows up in our Christian poetry, and it even shows up in some of our Christian writing. The next that I run up against is storge, or familial love, traditional or sentimental. Give me that old-time religion. There are people who love to go to church and love to read certain scriptures because it's comforting, like a warm blanket, like an electric blanket that they can curl up with and it comforts them. And people react to that. They say, oh, the smarmy religion. But in particular, older women look forward to that and they attend churches looking for that. And it's been proven over time that young people who grew up and then reacted to church and then took off for 35 years, 40 years, when they get older, they wind up being attracted to that and drawn back into the church for it. You see a lot of people all of a sudden they show up and they don't get rebaptized or anything. They just kind of pretend that they were there all along, but they weren't. Think of an old jacket you love. It's got maybe some holes in the elbows and, and then you sit down. For me, the best example of story is The Hobbit. I'll go and I'll experience The Hobbit and it, not only is it have a hominess about it, the adventure tale itself is dog-eared and takes me back to my childhood. The last that I learned about, the last love that I learned about was agape. And everyone says, well, it's agape love that I have for Jesus. I have this agape love, and he has that love for me. That is this unconditional love that Jesus has for me and an unconditional love that I have for him. And while that is a nice concept, I had an extremely difficult time comprehending it. Oh, so you don't understand how someone could love you unconditionally, Jared? Oh, no, that was easy. And I could love God without condition. I'm not looking for what he can give me necessarily. Necessarily. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But what Lewis wrote about was the nature of agape love as if it has had a regenerative quality to it. Like it was the magic ingredient 
that entered into the other three loves and redeemed them. Because all these three loves, however noble they may seem, had an element of selfishness to them that was systemic. Yes, three loves. I went over Eros, Storge, the last is Phileo. The brothers in arms. In my reading, I came to realize that with the atheist and secularist movements, um, that is the humanist movement, where you indirectly prop human beings and institutions up as gods, as authorities. So the authority of uh, the peer-reviewed article. That is the authority that you will point to, and it trumps scripture. That is a you know, small-letter god. And, and secular humanism references that god, despite numerous instances of it being proven extremely fallible. But in my reading, I discovered that in ancient times, a relationship with a deity was a given. The terms and nature of that relationship varied wildly, but the desire for that relationship was constant. It was an intellectual underpinning of mankind which still haunts the modern man despite our institution's best efforts to neuter the intellect and distract the imagination. So ancient man, believed there was a supernatural realm and that there was a supernatural ruler and they sought relationship with that ruler. And they used their religious mediums in order to gain access to that ruler, in order to gain his favor or avoid his judgment. And that that was a driving force, it was a given. All right, so Sky, it was a given in ancient times and in every conversation, it wasn't, is there a God? The real question was, who's God? Which Who's God? Your God or my God? I would posit that that's actually still the debate, and we've allowed it to shift. The man on the other cross is hanging there, right? And he, he gets it. He takes a moment and it occurs to him. There's a man on the cross and a man on the other cross. Man on cross one, man on cross two. In between is Jesus. Man on cross one reviles Jesus. And if I'm hanging there dying, I'm mad. I'm going to revile Jesus even as I am on the steps of hell. About to walk into the gate of eternal damnation. But man on cross two says, wait a minute, this is the Christ. And he says, what? What does he ask for? What is it he wants? What would you think he would ask for? What would you ask for? Tell me, O oh friend of God, what would you ask for if you were hanging on the cross, you had the presence of mind to realize you were hanging next to Jesus? Here are some common, good, evangelical Christian answers. Answer number one, please take care of my family or my children. Please rescue me. Please give me justice or please grant me revenge. Please give me salvation. Please give me forgiveness. That's the right answer, isn't it? But he doesn't. Noah, what he says instead is, remember me. since Noah's probably the only one that hasn't heard this five times, 
Noah, he said, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. He has to be remembered, to be remembered when he comes into his kingdom, when he comes into his throne, when he comes to power, when he takes his inheritance. The fear of the Lord or the fear of God is a complex thing. For me, a big part of that fear is being forgotten by God. How do I escape this hideous fate? Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Someone once said, what you fear you worship. That someone was my dad. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. Is that true? Yeah. Sort of. Sort of. Go ahead, David. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Hmm? Right. So here's a man hanging on the other cross, and he has wisdom all of a sudden. Why? What did he say? This is cross number two. What does he say to the first one? who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? I was afraid that I would paraphrase it poorly, so I had to scroll back up and read it. The fear of God, the fear of the Lord, is a complex thing. Then he turns to God, and you see, in my opinion, you see a glimpse of what he was afraid of. What was he afraid of? He says, please, don't forget me. In my narcissism, I'm afraid of burning in hell because it would hurt. But in a moment of clarity, it wasn't burning in hell that he was afraid of. The criminal apparently wasn't, he, what he didn't say was, give me salvation. What he said was, I want you to remember me. You, you with me on this? You ever have a friend and they remember you? They always remember you with fondness. In the Hebrew, to forget someone is to hate them, not angst and anger directed at them. No. It's forgetting them. Can God forget someone? No, God knows everyone. He knows how many follicles are on your head. He knows the sparrow. He knows, he knows you, right? And, and he's, he's God. It's not like he's going to forget you, right? But we see him standing in front of God, and he says, 
I depart from me. I never, I never knew you. Who are you? Oh, yes. Noah. Oh, yeah, come on over here. Yeah, that's awesome. Brian? Who's Brian? Never heard of him. Get him out of here. Is it because he never knew Brian? Because he didn't know his creation? Because he has a finite mind and he can't remember everything? I can only remember so many things. No, no, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And what really is it? Why would God forget you? Why would God forget you? Why would he choose to forget you? So, um, phileo works like this. I'm really into literature. My particular friend is also really into literature. And my other particular friend is also really into literature. And in this story, it's going to be Christina and M. And Christina and Em and Jared just finished reading together um, some, some writing by C.S. Lewis that they savored. And so they're sitting around, and Jared has port wine, but the others are drinking their, like, their, their favorite things to drink, right? So whiskey and rye. And as we're sitting there, sipping, with our feet up by the fire, which kicked off our shoes, and the drink at our elbow after a long day, and we're discussing something we love together because the object of our focus, the object of our attention, is outside of our relationship with each other. I don't need M to like me in this moment, and M doesn't need me to like her in this moment. We like something else together in that moment, and it's our mutual interest that drives that relationship. That's a phileo relationship. The brothers in arms. It is a very rewarding relationship to have. Now there are elements of sorge in the Christian faith. And there are elements of eros in the, in the Christian faith. But there is no emphasis on, in my experience growing up, there was no emphasis on phileo. But when we look at this, Moses spoke to God face to face like a man speaks to his friend. Right? And Lucifer was contending with Michael over the body of Moses, according to Jude as the body of Moses was being taken up. An interesting fact that Moses and Elijah, both men who didn't, possibly in Moses' case, definitely in Elijah's case, didn't die. One represents the law and one re represents the prophets, and they stand with Jesus, who did die, and rose again. Was taken up into heaven. But it's hard to love God, to be friends with God, to be friends with someone who isn't 
face to face. There is no substitute for a good, meaty, audible, face-to-face conversation. Why isn't this addressed, this desire? And this is difficult. It's hard to have a relationship with a man completely man, who is also God completely God. It is hard to have a relationship with a man completely man, who is also God completely God. Let's not pretend that it's simple or that it's easy. You will have to get out of yourself. How does one keep this desire as a burning, pressing motivation for all that I do? You know why I have a hard time with it? Because I forget. I can't hold it in the front of my mind. What happens when I don't want a relationship? In frustration, I despair of being friends with God. I despair of being face-to-face friends with God. God, I believe, help me in my unbelief. God, I believe, help me in my unbelief. God, I believe that I can have a face-to-face relationship with God. Man completely man, God completely God. Help me in my unbelief. Help. I can't even sustain that without his grace, without his supernatural initiation and intervention. And when I don't believe, when I'm not holding on to that, when I don't believe, I want to believe. Now, this is a tricky thing. Do you believe you can have a face-to-face relationship with Christ? On Wednesday, I believed I could. I believed that I could have it. But on Wednesday, I didn't. I doubted. But on Wednesday, I wanted to believe. I want to be face-to-face friends with God. Heaven. What is heaven? Never mind the popular idea. Let's talk about the Garden of Eden. Imagine the golden hour. The golden hour. Which, uh... (laughs) Not many people here, I'm sure, have ever seen Adam Green Gables, but... They film about half of that movie during the golden hour. And the golden hour is when the sun is setting and the light bends and it turns things golden yellow. And it lances through the trees. And it lances through in between structures, right? We're familiar with it. It's on the way to sunset. And it's romantic. We're going to call it the cool of the evening. Right? Adam is in an orchard. God is here now. Not the bearded God. All right? Well, maybe he has a beard, but not like a white beard 
and a toga. I'm talking about God. Maybe he's wearing a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. And he's right there. And you come out the door, and he's just been waiting. And you knew he was there, waiting, okay? And this isn't some kind, like, try not to get into weird evangelicalism here. I'll start filling in the blanks here. This is just a friend of yours you're meeting up with. This is just your buddy, your pal. You don't fall on your face and throw down your crown and holy, holy, holy. Not that. Not that. More of a Peter kind of relationship. Particular friend. All right, so you're in the garden and you start to walk in the orchard. Now, the way I imagine this, I come out the back door, I was called, but it was the only door that we ever used on the old farmhouse, unless you were Mormon. And you would walk out and you would um, head down. This is how I imagine it. I'm going to head down past the wind machine with the cherries on the right, the pears on the left. I'm going to go down that long one because the orchard that I grew up on was on a ridge. Uh, it was a, like a mini ridge, to be realistic. And the, the, the very slanting, um, but slight slant uh, on both ends. And, and, we, and we built the road kind of on the crest of, of the ridge, which was a little flatter than normal. And you come out, and you could hang a right, or you could hang a left. If you hang a left, it would take you deeper into some Bartlett's. It's a nice little turn there. But there was also the straight that would take you right down over to the uh, apples, kind of, uh, kind of at a slight incline down, decline down, whatever. But if you take a right, it would take you out on a beautiful vista, beautiful vista. And you were walking with God. And in the cool of the evening, the cool of the evening in the orchard that I grew up, grew up in, um, things got quieter. It was strange. And it's still true. If you go out in an orchard uh, during the day, the birds are loud. If you're paying attention, the birds are often quite loud. They're having a grand old time. It's raucous. Or there's an orchard next to you that's running machinery that's loud. And people are driving around, or maybe people are picking. Somebody's out there pruning. You can hear the radio playing with, you know, whatever, mariachi music. Or somebody's playing some good old ACDC while they're stacking bins. But now, the dogs are barking. Dogs are always barking. And you may run up against people as they're traveling around, they're doing their job out there on the farm, but in the cool of the evening, everybody's gone home, even the animals are quiet. It's quiet. And you can hear things from far away. It's odd, but somebody just got out of the car and they closed the door and you can hear it, and that's a long ways away. And you know, you can kind of see them a long ways away, tiny little figure getting out of their car. And as you're walking, you can smell things. Some of it's just dust the dust of the field as you're walking. And you notice the trees, and then you turn to your particular friend and you say, what? My kids ask me when I get home, so how was your day? And it's kind of hilarious. but wouldn't it be interesting to hear your particular friend tell you how his day went?
he's man, completely man, he's inside of time and outside of time. So how's that answer gonna go? What do you think Moses was talking about with God as a man speaks to his friend? We know that he would talk about his law and he'd talk about Israel and, and what God's plan was and how things were going to work as a man speaks to a friend. We also know, because he wrote it all out, what that contained. But we also know that he was up on the mountain so long they thought he died. He was hanging out with his friends so long they just assumed he was dead. That's when they made the golden calf, remember? So here he is having a conversation with God. Where did that conversation go? We don't know. We don't get in on that. We're not friends with God like that. But what if we could be? You know what I would do is I would really take my time. Not in a rush to go wherever we're going. Let's just try to slow it down as much as we can because I would, I would like to know just what you did today. Yeah, I got questions. I got a couple of questions. What do you want me to do? But if you could have a personal relationship with Christ where you walk face to face, Wouldn't that be something? God says we can have things. If you have faith, some things are possible, right? That's what it says, right? If you have faith, there are a couple of things that are absolutely possible. Just a few things, not everything. Let's not get carried away. I want a face-to-face -face relationship with God. Now, now, now. Let's be realistic. You're not Moses. And you're not Elijah. Now, I didn't read this part of the scripture, but that guy, Elijah, that guy Enoch, his father was Jared, right? Jared just had us read that scripture because his name was in it. Yes, that's true. And Enoch was friends with God. Now, I didn't read this part of the verse, for whatever reason, I didn't copy and paste it. But Enoch walked with God. Walked with God. Curious, don't you think? Walked with God. Went for a walk with God. Would go for walks with God. And then he was no more. That's what the Bible says. God took him. I'm not Elijah and I'm not Moses. But Enoch pre-existed Christ. And he walked with God. And God said... He's my friend. He's going with me. You savvy? Jared is driven by a motivation to be famous, to be rich. But what if I'm actually driven by the ambition of being friends with God? How does that change things for me? How does, how does that change how I relate to risk, Janelle? You can see how it would change how I relate to risk. Don't you see that? 
I'm ready to risk things. I'm ready to, I'm ready to have cracked walls and pretty lousy mud work in my basement. And, and then I'm ready to go and waste time on people. Not, you've never, she's never said I waste time on people. She's never said that. In conversations that we've had, right? Where I'll sit across from someone and say, do not eat the broccoli. Jared, I want your advice. What should I do? Well, I don't know what you should do, but I'll tell you what not to do. Do not eat the broccoli that's right in front of you. And they're like, I've decided to eat the broccoli, Jared. I'm like, of course you have. And Janelle's like, well, why? You could have been hanging out with the kids, right? Because God, if I want a relationship with God where I sit down and I put my feet up with a drink at my elbow, what do you think God wants to talk about? What do you think God really wants? Do you think he wants to talk about how much he loves me all the time? Because if modern evangelicalism is any inclination, that is apparently all he's interested in is just loving on me. I'll climb up into his lap. He's my daddy. He'll wipe my tears away. He'll help me with my boo-boos. But what Jesus said was, seek ye first the kingdom and everything will be added unto you. All right, got that. If you love me, keep my commandments. I'm afraid that at the end of my life, I will not be friends with God. I am afraid that God will forget me. Now, I don't live in fear and trembling that Jesus is going to take away his salvation from Jared. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm afraid that I'm not going to interest myself in the things that God is interested in and so forfeit the opportunity at a phileo relationship with him, a friendship with God that drives me. Janelle will tell you it keeps me up at night. I can't make you do anything. I can't make you want the number one thing. And this is me talking to my kids right now. This is for posterity because I believe I will die someday. I genuinely believe that I will die someday. I don't think Jesus is going to come back in my lifetime. Just not buying it. Sorry. Moving on. So for my children, I can't make you do anything. I can't make you want the number one thing. The Holy Spirit can do that. It is an easy thing to forget your first love. Don't do it. My son, my daughter, if you love me, if you ever cared for me, please choose to love Jesus. Obsess about a face-to-face relationship with him. Now we're going to pray. Dear God, I ask that you please have mercy on us for our sins. I ask that your grace would be poured out on our congregation as mighty as we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
so that is that to my point that the banquet and ball and the syndicate is Neverland and the rest of the world isn't. Comest thou at me, bro? Dark and sinister man. 